Hi, I'm Bob Boshansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, A Love Story. Most of us here in Mendocino County, California, have grown up in what might be described as a democracy or a democratic republic. We have certain ideas of what it means to be free. But what about someone who was born and raised in a country that was considered by much of the world as a dictatorship, a despotic, secretive, closed society with the state controlling most of everyone's lives? With me today is someone who not only was born and raised in such a country, she also lived through two very difficult and traumatic revolutions of a sort and survived with some of her family intact. My guest is Lee and her book is Free, A Child and a Country at the End of History. Lee is a professor of political theory at the London School of Economics and adjunct associate professor of the Australian National University with expertise in Marxism and critical theory. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Lee to Politics, a Love Story. Hi, Lee. Hello. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, I have a very limited knowledge about Albania. Uh, whatever I read was the little bit that I gleaned from spy novels. Uh, Enver, is it Hoxha? Hoxha. Hoxha was, uh, was described as the most totalitarian of all communist despots. That Albania was not a place that anyone from the West would go to on vacation, that it was hard to get into and like the Hotel California, even harder to leave. What was it? What was it really like growing up there? As I barely described it, or was it a nice place to grow up? No, I think uh, what you said all sounds right. It was a very isolated country. It was a cold socialist country. But by the time in which I was growing up, it had actually fallen out with not just every capitalist country that there was, which was understandable, but also with every other socialist state almost. And so it considered as its enemy, not just what were called the Anglo-American imperialists, but also the revisionists. And those were the Soviet Union at one point, Yugoslavia before that, later on China. And so in the eighties, which is when the, the book, uh, the story in the book was lived, it was a very isolated country with a very high degree of political censorship, of repression, of dissidents, and with also several economic difficulties because it was cut off from the rest of the world also economically. And so it didn't have a lot of trade. It produced everything inside the country. Um, but growing up there, uh, the degree of ideology that pervaded every aspect of life was so high that being a child there, you wouldn't know that this was an unfree society because you believed in what you were told in school. And so while I now know that that was not a free state, when I was growing up until the age of 11, which is when things changed and the system changed, I thought this was the most free society in the world. And even though there were hardships, I thought these were sacrifices that we had to make in the name of communist ideals and of the socialist system that we were trying to protect from the corruption of other states, both capitalist, but also more moderate socialist states. Well, one of the things you talked about was that you were a socialist state hoping to become a communist state. So you're making a distinction between the two. But before we get into that, I just want to uh, quote what your teacher, Nora, said. Albania was one of the freest countries on earth. 
Did your classmates believe that? Yeah, I think so. Children up to that age did believe that. I think a little bit older, perhaps uh, they started to realize as they were maturing and they, as they started to have political opinions, they began to notice that this was also a class that was very divided along a, a state that was very divided along class lines. And that's to say that there were class enemies, the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy. And this was a working class state whose job was to fight these other internal enemies. And so when people uh, were older, they would notice that there was a difference in how what, what kind of opportunities people were given by the state, depending on what kind of family that came from. And so if you came from a dissident family, a family with a history of uh, anti-communism or no militancy, your parents wouldn't be allowed in the party. And also the opportunities that you would have afterwards would be determined by that, by what was called your biography. And so every time you had to apply for a job or um, make a request to the state, you had to write a piece of paper with explaining what your biography was. And so biography was a really important word and a really important concept in those circumstances, because from your biography depended how your life would go, basically. But for and children, you're... this is difficult. You know, you didn't know it as a child because a child doesn't really have political opinions. And so when I was growing up, I was still a child. I was not mature enough to know what was going on politically. And so all I could pick up on was what was going on socially. And at a social level, there was a very strong sense of community in hardship and scarcity. And so there were good neighborly relations. There was lots of solidarity among people. Um, children would be looked after by either grandparents or friends or neighbors. And there was a very, very high degree of trust as well. Your family's, um, uh, let's see, what do you say? It was your biography or? Yeah. Well. It, under normal circumstances, uh, it would seem to be pretty good because uh, your ancestors had achieved pretty good things. But because of the fact that uh, you were in some way related to King Zog. Yeah, so my great grandfather was someone who had been a prime minister and then a minister under King Zog. And that he was also pivotal at the point in which Albania was um, invaded by fascist Italy my great-grandfather was a key office holder who passed the sovereignty of Albania, the crown of Albania, to the crown of Italy. And so in Albanian history, he was like the equivalent of a collaborationist government, so like the equivalent of the Vichy government or a Marshal Pétain or, you know, all these European governments that collaborated with either the fascists or the Nazis. And of course, for a country whose history, like a socialist Albania, was shaped by the resistance and by the Second World War effort against the fascists and the Nazis, someone like that stood out as a character that deserved the kind of hatred and contempt that was reflected in history books. And that was one of the reasons why, when I was growing up, I didn't know that he was my great-grandfather. So he had the same name and surname as my father. But one of the things that I write about in the book is the fact that I always thought that this character and my father had the same name and surname by mistake and by coincidence, because this is what I was told by my parents. It's only when the uh, system changed that I was told that it wasn't actually a coincidence and that this man was actually my, he was related and he was my great grandfather. And that was one of the reasons also why we didn't have uh, heroes of the war to commemorate whenever at school, we were asked to bring, when we celebrated the resistance and we commemorated the heroes of the war, children were asked to bring in school examples or uh, memories of relatives who had made 
who had taken part in this war effort, I was on the wrong side of that effort. And so I never had anything to bring to school. And that also singled me out from other children. Uh, your family also talked in euphemisms and they kept a lot of the reality of the past history of the family away from you. And they would talk about uh, people, people going to university and taking a long time to get their degrees and that the universities they went to were characterized by letters rather than the actual name. What you came to find out a lot later was those were prison terms that people were away for and the letters uh, talked about the, the prisons that they were incarcerated in. Uh, that was, must have been a terrible revelation when you finally learned the truth. Yeah, it was very hard and it was also very confusing. Throughout my childhood, there had been these glimpses of mystery around my family. And so even though I grew up in a socialist state and I thought I was a good socialist citizen, someone who believed in the party and who believed in the system and believed that this was a free society, there was always in my family, there were strange things about them, which had made me somehow suspicious that this was an unusual family somehow, but I couldn't quite pick up what it was. And I didn't know exactly what was wrong with them. But I remember there were several episodes in which I wondered what kind of family I had and <laughs> did they stand out from the rest of Albanian society and did they maybe not show as much devotion to the system as I thought they should show. And one of the mysteries was of uh, my relatives, including my grandfather, my other grandfather, my great grandfather, all going to what was called university. And especially in the case of my grandfather, this was uh, always spoken about because um, the idea was that he had done his first degree in Paris and he studied at the Sorbonne. He was an educated person who had done this law degree in Paris and he was a socialist and so on. And then I was told that he had had for reasons that I was never, nobody ever explained that he had gone to university for 15 years. And so this was part of the family story that the grandfather had gone away somewhere for 15 years. And my father had to be raised just by my grandmother who was a single mother. Then after he'd left to go to the research. And um, it was only when things changed that I was told that when my family spoke of universities, they meant educational institutions of a very special kind, namely coercive institutions where you get disciplined and educated into coercion. And that was prisons. And I was told also that the first letters uh, that they referred to universities with were the letters of the various prison sites and deportation sites where relatives ended up. And also that the different degrees that people were told of were spoken of as having completed, you know, like, um, for example, uh, you'd say someone had finished a degree in economics, those corresponded to different sentences in prison. And so economics was usually something related to property, like hiding gold and refusing to let your property being taken, or international relations was a sentence for agitation and propaganda, or, um, you know, there were a number of sentences. And when people said, for example, that someone had dropped out of prison or dropped out of university, it meant that they had committed suicide in prison. And if they said that someone had stayed on to teach, it meant that someone who had been to prison had been converted into a spy and had stayed on and become someone who would collaborate and report. Well, if somebody dropped out, could that also mean that they were killed? Or, or... that they were killed, yeah. Okay, so it's not just suicide. Yeah, no, it was both. It could hmm. be one or the other. So your awakening started uh, in 1990, really. That's when things changed uh, in the world, uh, and especially in Albania, because 
they were allied with, well, you, as you said, Yugoslavia for a while, because Tito had uh, removed himself from Stalin's influence. And I guess that affected Albania to a degree because there are different types of communism. And wasn't the Stalinist one of the strictest forms? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the reasons was that Albania had this alliance with Yugoslavia to begin with, and then they fell out when Yugoslavia moved out of the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union and the state loyal to the Soviet Union. And they also then later broke with the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union went through a phase after the death of Stalin of revisiting the cult of Stalin and also went in a more moderate direction in terms of criticizing the purges and criticizing Stalinism and the kind of degree of political repression that the Soviet Union under Stalin had. And Albania was always kept this very strict orthodox Stalinist line and basically was prepared to break relationships with whoever would criticize Stalin. And about uh, 1990, when you said everything changed forever, you also point out, and I quote, for the first time, I wondered whether freedom and democracy not be the reality in which we live, but a mysterious future condition, which I knew very little. That's yes, an interesting, interesting the, statement. Yes, this was the, um, I mean, this, this reflected really the confusion at the time of someone who had grown up under a certain kind of ideology and ideological influence and being really, and whose mind was shaped by these truths of the state and the discovery that perhaps not everyone in the country believed in those truths that were reflected through the educational institutions. And if you were a child, uh, and as I say, you were just a victim of censorship and of ideology and you wouldn't question these beliefs, but uh, at some point you realized that there were other people in society who objected to the way in which Albania handled its affairs. and. That was a moment where I began to think, well, you know, why are there protests? Why are people complaining? Why do they not like the government? If this is the freest society on earth, why do they want freedom? And so this was the point at which I realized that, uh, and I, I began to realize that the kind of world in which I lived was not just not a free world, but actually one of the most unfree states that there existed. Well, what I found very interesting is that the way you described your family, it seemed that they were somewhat subversive. Uh, they didn't toe the line. They talked about things, at least in the home, uh, even with the euphemisms that they used to shade or, or to protect you. They still didn't really believe they weren't committed socialists or communists. So it seems to me, is that correct? Yeah, no, they weren't at all. I mean, they couldn't be because they were singled out as class enemies. So at every step of their lives, there were repercussions for coming from these families. So my mother came from this bourgeois property holding family whose properties were, well, she was in one of the richest families in Albania before the war. And then with the arrival of communism, their properties were taken by uh, the state. And so they had lost everything and had become really poor. And on my father's side, they were in part through this connection with this prime minister who was a problematic figure, but also because they were intellectual and some of them were more progressive in the family, but still dissidents, they had always been a target of suspicion of the state. And so they had had this kind of dissident background, which meant that they could never be either accepted, but also they themselves couldn't recognize the system in which they lived. But of course they had to survive somehow under conditions of political censorship, 
which is why they had developed developed this code language that also required them to single out different people and to try and figure out make these decisions on who they could trust and who they couldn't and you know earlier i said in the community there was a lot of trust but there was also a lot of mistrust because there were informants and reporters and so there was a fine line of decisions that needed to be made by people like my parents and my family with this particular background on what kind of things they could take for granted in society and who they could be uh, they could believe in and who they could have they had to be careful in uh, of and so um but yes they tried to in some ways retain their identity and also to retain their dissidence it's just that when they were with me it would have been not only dangerous to reveal explicitly who they were and what kind of beliefs they had and because they would have gone to prison or I would have gone and talked to someone and they we would they would have been objectively endangered. But I also think that they didn't want to crush my aspirations too early. In a way, for me, being part of the state and having these ambitions of being a good citizen and being a good pioneer and so on, they saw all of that as something that you need to encourage until there is a point at which the child realizes that they're living in a lie, but that there's something in these ambitions that needs to be cultivated because if you crush it too early, then you just crush someone's hope and desire to do things in life. And so I think it was both the reason for why they had this secret language and they weren't telling me was in part to protect themselves, but also in part to protect me and to make sure that I wouldn't be betrayed too early by them. And while I was reading your book, I, I, I was wondering to myself that in such a secretive state and so uh, rigidly run, how your parents were able to escape from being arrested and thrown in jail. Uh, they must have done a really good job of hiding their true feelings, as you said, from your neighbors. And that's another thing when you were talking about how everyone was cooperating to a degree, at least from uh, a child's perspective. Uh, it's amazing that they stayed out of jail or were main, maintained their lives, even with having those feelings and ideas. Yeah, I think they had to be careful throughout and they had with time, uh, so my family, my grandfather went to prison in 1946 and I grew up in the 80s. So these were 40 years of living in this particular family context. And of course, people from that background also married with each other. Um, there were communities that were very um, inward looking in some ways. And so they, um, they had developed this code and they had developed this habit of survival and they had developed these practices which they had refined over the years and which somehow were passed on from one generation to the other and from you know one set of relatives to the other so there are all these tricks and tips that they were passing to each other and that had they had refined with time but of course nobody could be ever completely safe and it was always arbitrary and there was always a degree of chance in some ways as well so you could also just from one day to the other, end up being a victim without quite knowing what had gone wrong and so on. I'm gonna take this opportunity to reintroduce you for anyone who is just tuning in. Uh, this is Politics, A Love Story. Uh, my guest today is Lee Upi, whose book is Free, A Child and a Country at the End of History. It's about Albania, and I'm sure that there are many of us uh, who don't know a lot about Albania. And I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. So you mentioned the fact that your father had severe asthma. Uh, and I wonder, um, you also mentioned that 
many people had asthma of some sort or another. So the air must have been terribly polluted. Yeah, my father had actually contracted asthma when the family was deported. And uh, he developed these kind of lung problems because they were sent in a very moldy barn. And so he changed the environment very quickly. They were living in a capital and then they were sent in this kind of um, isolated place with a very, yeah, very bad, bad mold and kind of humidity, basically. Otherwise, the air as such, uh, there was we we didn't have any cars, so people uh, didn't have you know because you weren't allowed property, and so you weren't allowed private property, and so private cars didn't exist. People only had buses and bicycles, basically, and the buses were state owned, and all the companies were state owned. So in some ways, it became much more polluted afterwards when the cars came and when people started developing you know their own means of transport and having their own means of transport after 1990 his his asthma got worse but in in different circumstances at the beginning it was mainly to do with humidity well uh, and i guess another aspect is um you said there wasn't much trade so there wasn't a lot of manufacturing going on so no pollution from factories well that was a bit more uh, tricky actually because there were factories that were in so insider factories so because we we didn't have trade with other countries we produced a lot of stuff ourselves and so some of the factories that we had were actually extremely polluting uh, ones and uh, with for example the one that was built in a city called El Basan which was a kind of metallurgical factory which was built with the help of the Chinese back in the 70s when we were still in an alliance with China was extremely problematic because it was uh, it, there were eventually birth defects associated to the presence of that factory in that area and so on so yeah it wasn't clear that we we did have a few factories and the ones that we did were not at all up to standard, that they weren't reflecting any environmental standards. And then the next uh, a, a traumatic event was Uncle Enver died. Uh, and that was in 1985. Yeah. Uh, how did that affect things? Um, so from my point of view, I remember this is one of my first political memories, actually, is the death of Enver Hoxha. And uh, I was at nursery and I remember the teacher sitting down all the children and telling them, you know, something terrible has happened and Uncle Enver died and everyone was really upset and the teacher was extremely upset and so on. And this was one of the moments in which I remember having a glimpse of kind of doubting my family because I went home and I was really, really upset and sad. and. I said to my mother, I don't want to eat because Uncle Enver has died. And uh, and she kept praising a burek, a pie that she had made, which to me, I remember feeling, I having this memory of thinking, why is she wanting to eat? I'm not hungry. I don't want to eat. It's such a sad day. And, uh, and also a couple of days after when the funeral was being shown on television, I remember there were these devastating images of soldiers and women and uh, workers on the streets, all of them wailing, being extremely desperate and crying and so on. And I remember my family and me watching, but then at some point my uh, mother and my father started having an argument about the music in the funeral procession. And so they started talking about, is this Beethoven or is this an Albanian composer? And again, it was one another of these moments where you think, well, if the whole country is in mourning and people are crying and they're, you know, we've lost this great leader of Albania, the father of the nation and so on, how are, how are they only interested in music and how can they even have this conversation about music? So again, this was a kind of child's impression of something that seemed really important. And connected to that also, I remember that at that point, uh, people added even more photos of Enver Hoxha in their houses because there were in every house of kind of compliant communist people there was a photograph of Enver Hoxha and in ours there wasn't and I remember I was always asking them why we, why don't we 
have a photo? Why don't I have a photo? Why have I never met Tender Hoja and so on? And my parents kept making excuses and saying, oh, we need a nice frame for it. Or we don't have a photograph because we're waiting for a really good one. And you haven't been yet because, you know, we were just waiting for your turn and so on. So they kept making excuses, but which suggested that somehow they weren't completely aligned to the rest of society. And this was, again, a suspicion that I had. It was never confirmed. When they, If I confronted them, they would have never agreed to it. They would have said that uh, it was just my impression and that wasn't the case and they were very committed and so on. But it was one of the things that afterwards, when the truth was revealed to me, I thought that there had clearly been a signal from early on. It's only that I didn't know where to look and I hadn't been able to decode the language. Um, you point out that when the party was strong enough to fight the believers of religion, voluntary action was taken to transform all places of worship into spaces for youth training and development. Churches became sports centers, mosques became conference halls. And you also point out that most people in Albania were Muslim. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So historically, uh, the majority of people had been of Muslim background and Muslim religion. And it was traditionally also a very tolerant society. So, you know, we did have Muslims and Catholics and Orthodoxes, but uh, historically, in part also as a result of the influence of the Ottoman Empire, there was a high degree of toleration between religions and a high degree of kind of coexistence and so on. But uh, at some point in the 60s, is at the point in which Albania actually began to become completely isolated from other socialist states, it also launched into this massive campaign against religion. And it was, in fact, I think one of, I think the only country in the world to have atheism in its constitution. The fact that this was an atheist country and that there was no religion, that religion had been abolished. And uh, with this campaign of abolition of religion came these uh, mass voluntary or not so voluntary, sort of supported by the party actions to destroy the mosques and destroy the churches. And this was, again, another line of criticism that namely religion that distinguished Albanian socialism from other socialisms around the world, because in other countries, you would have had more tolerance, even in Soviet Russia, there was tolerance, more tolerance of religion. Um, it wasn't exactly advertised or anything, but it was still there was a degree of toleration of people's beliefs and uh, of religious festivities and so on. Whereas in Albania, this was completely prohibited and priests were sent to prison, imams were sent to prison and the degree of persecution of religious officials was completely different from other countries, including other socialist countries. And that's a, a point that uh, they have a sentence and I'm, I'm trying to put it into context. I, I thought it was an important sentence to write, but I didn't get the surrounding context to it. It is... Socialism was contrary to human nature anywhere and in any form. What did you mean by that? Uh, this was when the things began to change. And at one point, the system was being um, fought from. So basically, at some point, from being an extremely committed country to socialism, the change came, the system changed, and everybody became an anti-communist. And at that point, this difference of Albania and other socialist states and the fact that they had been enemies and so on became kind of irrelevant. So the project turned from being a communist project, highly ideological with people who are very firm believers in it 
into turning completely against it in all its manifestations and without thinking about the kind of degrees of the differences between other places or the difference between, let's say, communism in theory and communism in practice or between, you know, socialist ideals and socialist states and the differences between these socialist states. And in part, this was, uh, I suggest in the book, in that paragraph, in part, this was because the degree of compliance and complicity in the state and the kind of degree with which people had both collaborated and being victims of the system was so complicated that this process of reconciliation and process of kind of trying to shed light on the past and to figure out who had been a collaborator, who had helped, who had been a victim and so on, was such a difficult one that it was in some ways almost easier to be an enemy of the concepts and to all identify with this general opposition to these ideals of socialism and to the concepts as opposed to trying to identify people who are responsible. Your father, uh... You seem to have had a good relationship with your parents and your grandmother. Uh, and your father had all these pet names, nicknames that he gave you. And at one point after 1990, I guess, uh, he called you Brigatista, uh, a nickname that referred to the far left terrorist movement, the Red Brigades. Why did he, why did he associate you with terrorism? Because, uh, so for him, these were rebellious groups, basically, and the people who were had, who did something, who broke the law all the time. And he was following these movements. These were the movements that kind of emerged in Europe after 1968. And he had a kind of interest in these movements that were both romantic, revolutionary, but also against the state, in part because I think he liked to identify with this rebellious movement because he felt that he lived in this society where there had there was absolutely no margin for him of exercising political rights and of having political opinions and having a voice. And so somehow he became attracted to these groups that were fighting the state, even though he didn't, there wasn't really a big difference between what kind of state they were fighting, but somehow he was interested and he was following these political processes in the rest of Western Europe. And he identified with his generation of 1968ers who had all flirted in some point or other with these uh, revolutionary movements were also anti-state movement, but also romantic and often um, ended up being fighting violently against the state, but also they themselves killed and so on. So it was very complicated history that he didn't quite understand the nuances of, but that somehow attracted him because of this idea of the kind of romantic revolutionary, I suppose, which he felt he could not be in communist Albania. And so he, uh, I, I, I only later discovered who actually they were because I had this nickname or I was called this and I never even knew who they were and what they did. It's just that I knew that there was something to do with breaking the law and it was something with when I was, was, I was not being compliant or when I was being naughty. And this was his way of sort of referring to that in me. So it was, in his case, a kind of playful thing, but um, with this background that I completely ignored and I didn't know what it was. You seem to be uh, interchanging uh, socialism and communism, but there is a strong difference. Uh, can you give us your view of what the differences are? So I think in socialism, you have what was called the dictatorship of the proletariat, namely the working classes make the rules and you have class struggle and you have the fight against the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy. And that's a socialist society is one where the working class holds political power. And in the case of the socialist states, it wasn't as much the working class as much as the working class parties, because they were these were party controlled states. And uh, so they weren't really the movement 
of the workers. It was a movement that spoke on behalf of the workers, but often, as we know from the experience of 1980 and dissidents in Poland and other places, the workers themselves eventually turned against these states. But for all intents and purposes, these were considered to be working class states and a socialist state was one where the working classes held power. And the idea was that these socialist states weren't quite communist yet because communism is a condition in which the state actually withers away. And so the idea is that in communism, everybody has internalized good rules and has internalized justice and uh, to the point that they don't actually need the state to exercise power and to make laws and to be violent against people, but people will just do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And so this was a kind of ideal of communist rule, which these countries often said they were moving towards, and which was also a way of justifying the sacrifices that were being made and the costs that this transition was going to bring in this place and that it actually brought in these places. But it was an important distinction between the kind of the communist state or state of affairs and the socialist state as the institutional reality in which these societies lived. Did any country ever achieve pure uh, communism then? No, no country on this, uh, on this description and on this account, these were all countries that were trying to be communistic, but none of them was actually a communist country. What I find interesting is uh, the fact that there is nothing that achieved, no country that achieved that. And yet uh, we talk about capitalism on the other side. And yet pure capitalism has never really gone on because like here in the United States, when there was the downturn in 2008, all those companies that were making huge amounts of money before then came to the government with their hands out. They wanted to be supported by the state. Yeah. And this is what socialism is supposed to be, is that everyone yeah. is treated sort of equally, but they never shared their profits with yeah. the state. Uh, why should they bad decisions, why should they then get support from the state? Yeah, exactly. And I think this would have been one of the instances in which to point out the kind of inconsistency of, you know, if you want capitalism, then you should also bear the responsibility for losses, because it's central to capitalism that people have uh, responsibility, that they make decisions, and when they make risky decisions, they fail and they take responsibility. But it was, I think it's an interesting question, the one around, you know, the ideal of capitalism and the reality of capitalism, because in some ways, I find that applies to every and it's partly what I say towards the end of the book, it applies to every complex of ideals and reality. There is a part, and I mean, even the church, if you think about it, there is a part of it that is about ideals and beliefs and commitments that are pure, but then also an institutional side to it, which has a history, which is often a tragic history. And as I say, it applies to the church when you think about the Crusades or when you think about the Inquisition or when you think about the injustice. And it applies to capitalism when you think about colonialism and the kind of institutional realities of capitalism, but also the ideals that it tries to promote. And I think it applies to communist uh, ideals and communist states as well. And all of these are run by human beings and we are flawed. Yeah, and in fact, that is one, I think, of the main messages in the book is actually to try and see these different ideals and different ideologies as they shape human lives and as they create different conflicts and as they are part of the lived realities of everyday citizens and not just as sets of ideals and sets of concepts. So you must be fully aware that um, what you thought about socialism while you were growing up is totally different than how you see socialism today. 
Yeah, I think there is a part of me that uh, studies socialism from a more theoretical perspective and that thinks that it provides valuable insights for criticizing capitalism. And since I live now in a capitalist society and in a capitalist state, I think there are some parts of that theory and also some parts of the moral critique of capitalism that is often made from alternative systems of thought, which is valuable and worth thinking if you want to move beyond the injustices and in some ways the unilaterality of the use of power in the societies in which we live. And so it's true, I, I try to capture both aspects, as I say, and also with regard to liberalism and capitalism, not just with regard to socialism, I think it's important to be aware both of what these theories say and what they're committed to in principle, and uh, how they try to deliver on those principles when they turn into institutional reality, and how these institutional realities affect the lives of people on the ground. And you can only make, I think, progress with critiques of society if you combine all of these levels and you don't just get stuck on one of them and say, well, this is what the theory requires and, you know, who cares how this were, how this worked out in the world? Or on the other hand, well, since it's never worked out in the world, then the theory must be really bad as well and we must abandon that. And I think the book is in a way trying to caution against both these extremes and to develop a more sophisticated way of understanding our history, our institutions, so that it serves our thinking about the future. I want to quote your teacher, Nora, again. Uh, she said that socialism was not perfect. It was not like communism would be when it arrived. Socialism was a dictatorship, the dictatorship of the proletariat. So uh, she had interesting things to say, and you must have admired her quite a bit because you quote her uh, a number of times in your book. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't think I quote her admiringly. It's a way for me of reconstructing the ideology of the time and to uh, think about how someone's views and how someone's perceptions who grows up in this system might have been shaped by a piece of education, which is at the same time a piece of propaganda, of ideology, but which also has some commitments to it and which has a kind of discourse that tries to advance on what freedom is, what justice is, and how societies realize it. And I'm going to quote you now in this next uh, paragraph. Uh, you said, I'd always thought there was nothing better than communism. Every morning of my life, I'd wake up wanting to do something to make it happen faster. But in December 1990, the same human beings who had been marching to celebrate socialism and the advance towards communism took to the streets to demand its end the representatives of the people declared that the only thing they had ever known under socialism were not freedom and, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I lost my space here. Oh, and not freedom and democracy, but tyranny and coercion. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So this was the, uh, again, the uh, for me, a description of the confusion and of the perplexity of living through this transition in which almost overnight, all the familiar categories of life that you have grown up with, all the things that have shaped your beliefs and all the stuff that society was also thought to believe in just turns into an enemy and disappears. And suddenly you find yourself with a completely different way of thinking and with a parallel system of thought in which all the freedoms that you believe to be unfreedoms and where the sacrifice that you thought you were making in the name of this transition from socialism to communism is in fact an example of tyranny and oppression. And that was the point at which you realize that it's the same people 
but the ideology with which the people reflects on itself is completely different. And that makes you see the whole discourse on freedom very differently. That must have been quite difficult for you uh, being so young and being uh, abused of all those ideals that you had held before. Yeah, and I also don't think I completely understood it at the time. Sometimes I find these uh, traumatic breaks in the way in which one's identity is shaped keep revealing the, their consequences throughout someone's life. And so I remember from the time this confusion and fear and hesitation and also um, first not knowing who to trust and then trusting my parents and turning into a real militant against communism from having been a militant in favor of communism in my early school years. And uh, I think that in the long run, it's actually really hard to know what the consequences of these identity breaks are for someone's life, because in some ways we live these consequences every day and we grow with them and we mature with them and they sort of reveal themselves in your life always, all the time. It's not there is a point at which you settle accounts with the past and you know who you are and you know how to handle it. So for me, even writing the book was a way of trying to figure out why I had certain beliefs and why I had certain commitments and how they connected to my past. And for the first time in your life, you had an opposition newspaper. And in that first edition, you quote one of the lines that I'm going to quote now, only the truth is free. And only when the truth is revealed does freedom become true. That was in the first edition of the first opposition newspaper. Yeah, that's right. That must have been exciting to read. Yeah, I remember uh, the days in which this opposition, the first issue of this opposition newspaper came out. It was extremely exciting. They ran out. There were, you know, the first copies. People, they were sold immediately, completely sold out. And people were then trying to share them and you know finish reading then send them to a neighbor or to a relative or there was I, I just remember this excitement around this first free newspaper that where people would actually be able to speak their mind and to just exercise this freedom of thought that they had never had under communism it was genuinely thrilling the atmosphere around this discovery of freedom uh, do you keep in touch with uh, people that you grew up with who were still in Albania yeah, some of them. And in fact, some of them have been my readers for the manuscript, for the draft of the book. When I wrote the first draft, I shared it with some of my friends with whom I had shared this kind of past childhood. And I was asking them if I remembered things correctly or uh, if I if the perception sounded right and if they would identify with the way of telling the story. And uh, so they were very important to me. And how are they enjoying life today in Albania? Well, that depends on where you are in a way, in a kind of chain of distribution of opportunities, because uh, like a lot of other capitalist societies, it's Albania is now a very unequal society mm. and uh, where, you know, some people have a lot of money and with that a lot of freedom and other people have a lot less and therefore also a lot less freedom and much more constraint. And, you know, I think if someone, uh, you could have, you have this kind of formal freedoms of expression and opinion and thought and so on, but if you haven't got money to get a decent education, then the way in which you use that freedom is very different. And the way you can articulate yourself is also very different if you've had different opportunities to develop your thoughts. And likewise, if you, you know, you can be free to travel, but if you haven't got a job and you haven't got income, then you don't have money to travel. And so there's a sense in which I think liberal capitalist societies promise freedom, but don't realize it for everyone. And that this is one of the sources for critique of these societies is the way in which they don't really deliver for everyone. Well, in coming from uh, a supposed uh, Western free uh, society, 
the one thing that has always struck me, uh, and I'm referring now to George Orwell's Animal Farm, all pigs are created equal, but some pigs are more equal than others. That's what happened, we thought, in a socialist communist society. The leaders always enjoyed the best of foods, the best clothing, while everyone else uh, didn't get much at all. Yeah, I think that's right. But I also think that the same thing about freedom could be said in liberal capitalist societies. You could say all men are created and women and all human beings are created free, but some are more free than others because that's of the true. way in which you exercise these freedoms and the opportunities you have to exercise them. And uh, Albania was called at one time the lighthouse of anti-imperialist struggles around the world. That's right. Yeah, this was very much part of this uh, ideology around being one of the very few countries that were actually standing up for this ideological purity and criticizing all the other socialist states as well. So one of the things about, uh, I asked you about before, how difficult it must have been in the transition uh, and uh, going from a totalitarian country to one that was freer um, could not have been easy. Freer, but for you more boring, as you pointed out in your book, uh, you had no clubs, no poetry, theater, singing, math, natural science, music, or chess. They all had come to an abrupt end in December of 1990. Uh, and one question I have, which is much smaller than that concept I just mentioned, is why didn't your parents want you to go out after dark? Because it was dangerous. So this was the time at which um, the state was kind of collapsing and there was electricity shortages, it just got dark, there was just no light outside. There was a lot of uh, social alienation, a lot of anomie and uh, a lot of people who were kind of unemployed, drunk, and it got and, and anymore. So this kind of the way in which the state had operated before by being extremely oppressive, it was uh, and, and restrictive, it was also able to just enforce the law more. And when the state stopped being so oppressive, actually the, uh, the state apparatus, the police and all the kind of coercive part of the state also became really weak. And there were these gangs and people were uh, immediately, there was sex trafficking and drug deals. And so it became, there was a sense in which a lot of things that were familiar, a lot of social evils that were familiar in the West that didn't exist in Albania arrived very quickly and without people being prepared and equipped and without knowing how to handle these problems. And so it was just, it was just dangerous basically. So they wouldn't let me go out because they were worried that someone would kidnap me and rape me or try and sell me as a sex, as a sex worker somewhere. And yeah, just these very banal kind of security concerns. And uh, I think what I've gotten from your book is that your closest friend, that's what actually happened to her. Exactly. Yeah. So she was someone who um, she went to school with me. Her mother died early in childbirth, still during communism. And then things changed in 1990. Her father was uh, sacked, had lost his job and he became unemployed. And then she was kind of lost her way and went, ran away with a boy who eventually turned into a pimp in uh, Italy. And then, you know, she ended up being a sex worker. And the last thing we knew about now, she doesn't live anymore, but the last time I heard of her in Albania was that she was just in uh, Milan on the working on the streets as a sex worker. Mm -hmm. And uh, you related uh, some conversations with your mother, and this was after things started to change rapidly. Uh, and the quote is, the old building has been returned to the owners. And whenever your mother said owners, she meant the previous owners. 
The state for her could never be considered an owner of anything. Only a criminal entity built on the violent appropriation of other people's hard work. Uh, that's how the state was viewed after uh, things went differently. Yeah, that's right. And also, I think she's there and she kind of symbolizes this very, uh, I suppose, libertarian idea of freedom, which is all about securing property rights and finding out entitlements and guaranteeing and, and just seeing the function of the state as an institution that is there just to defend property rights, but without then having any scope for further interference, without needing to redistribute. And so it was a kind of purely liberal, purely capitalist view of freedom and of the state in relationship to the guarantee of those freedoms. And this next quote uh, enhances on that. Uh, and it's, we want Albania to be like the whole of Europe, fighting corruption, promoting free enterprise, respecting private property, encouraging individual initiative, in short, freedom. Yeah, that's right. This was the discourse of the 90s. And this is the ideology that replaced the communist and the socialist ideology that went uh, overnight, basically. It was a discourse of anti-corruption, of individual responsibility, and of developing institutions that were able to promote this liberal idea of freedom. And most importantly, catching up with the rest of Europe and uh, the idea that the West had succeeded, had won the Cold War, and all you needed to do in the East was to now create a society that was a mirror image of those that they had aspired to be part of for all those years. Well, you have a slightly different view, I think, that you pointed out in your book. In a former communist country, there is no left or right, only communist nostalgics and liberal hopefuls. Yeah, that was, again, how uh, society, that was a legacy of that transition, actually. And this connects to your uh, earlier quote where you were saying, you know, I say in the book that at some point there was this revolution of people against concepts and that communism was wrong in any form. And this left society with this view of, you know, there's those that will be nostalgic and that will want to go back to exactly how it was. And so if you're on the left, you must be someone who wants to go back to this degree of state oppression and uh, this way of understanding what the left is on the one hand or you were someone who's just completely opposed to that and would want to be a capitalist. And in a way, the book is just an effort to reflect on those dichotomies and on the kind of polarization that comes with them and these divisions and to urge people to try and think beyond those divisions and to try and kind of recover the common meaning of concepts and the shared tradition of commitment to freedom or the way in which these ideals are actually part of both of these transitions so as to construct a common ground to have a conversation that cuts across political divisions in a way. And for a while there was a lot of money flowing around for a variety of reasons and as a result there were innumerable pyramid schemes that came about and your family got caught up in one of those. Yeah, this was in uh, 97 when uh, at some point this was the result of several years of people making these financial investments with companies that had brought the or were trying to match the new spirit of capitalism, which is to invest and save money and save and invest. And so the circle of saving and investment. And because Albania didn't really have a financial sector before 1990, it began to develop this financial sector and not a lot of banking knowledge. It was all, you know, basically cowboy capitalism, whoever promised that, you know, if you give us the money and we'll keep your money and we'll save it, then we will give you a lot of money in return. These Ponzi schemes, these pyramid schemes emerged that uh, basically managed to convince everyone with this kind of fraud fraudulent discourse, but which in some ways was 
parasitic on these capitalist categories that had entered the country to deposit their savings until these companies became insolvent and two thirds of the population lost their savings and at that point became extremely angry with the government. They started looting weapons from the assault, from the depots and uh, the state just lost control and lost the monopoly of the use of force. So even its basic function at the state could no longer be exercised and everybody had a gun and there were Kalashnikovs everywhere. And this was 97, the year in which I was um, finishing my A-levels. There was this kind of general state of anarchy, complete collapse of both the economic system of the political system, but also of the trust in any of these systems and just the kind of loss of hope. And you, you mentioned in your book all of the, the shooting that was going on almost 24 hours a day. Somebody somewhere was shooting off their Kalashnikovs, whether at other people or just in the air. You didn't know that, but uh, that must be a terrible thing to live under as well. Yeah, and it was one of these things that makes you realize in some ways, makes you think, you know, what is law and order and, you know, how important it is, because when you don't have these things, you take it for granted and you think it's normal to live in a peaceful society in which you're not threatened and you don't run the risk of dying from one minute to the next. And that was an example of, you know, what happens when you lose that and you lose this very basic certainties. I remember I was preparing my A-levels at the time and there were all these Kalashnikov bullets flying around with people just shooting up in the air. And my grandmother was saying to me, oh, you know, you can do your rehearse for your A-levels. If you just move your bed out of the window a little bit, there you won't have a, there won't be a bullet and you won't be killed. And for me, when I think about it now, just the fact of having to make that kind of decision that, you know, I will, I'll be fine with my A-levels if my bed is just a meter away from the window and I'm not killed, is the kind of example of something that you completely take for granted, that under peace conditions, and then if you're in a war in the middle of a civil conflict, you can no longer take that for granted. And so every basic certainty is just gone. You teach both Marxism and philosophy. And one of the points you made about uh, philosophy is that philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point is to change it. So maybe that's why you're more than just a philosopher. Yeah, that was one of the quotes that uh, I remember uh, we, were just, we were discussing when I was talking about philosophy with my father and, uh, and I announced this decision and my family was really hostile because they had associated philosophy to Marxism for them. That was that and that was, that was all there was. And, and this idea that philosophy was responsible for all the evils of their lives, namely Marxist philosophy, but for them there wasn't really anything beyond that. And for me, this quote has actually been really important uh, ever since, because I remember at the time having this argument around, well, maybe this is not exactly what it means. Maybe you need both theory and practice. But it's also been really important to try and think about how you criticize the societies in which you live and how you have to think about ideals and reality as always connected to each other and how if you think about history in the right way, then history can be a really important source of learning and that learning can be useful that learning about the past can be useful to shape and frame opportunities for the future. And to expand on that, uh, you have written, a society that claims to enable people to realize their potential, but fails to change the structures that prevent everyone from flourishing is also oppressive. And yet, despite all the constraints, we realize our inner freedom to do what is right. Yeah, this picks up on the different ideas of freedom that are uh, part of the book and that in some way shape the narrative of the book. There is this more liberal uh, first generation idea of freedom, which I think was missing in socialist Albania, namely the freedom of association, the freedom of thought, the freedom to travel. And uh, on the other hand, you move 
after the socialist period, you're into this kind of liberal capitalist period in which you don't have an authority like the party or the state oppressing people in this direct way. But what you have is anonymous interactions and structures of cooperation that uh, are oppressive because they create conditions like unemployment or social inequality, or they force people to do certain things that they wouldn't otherwise have to do if they were in a society where everyone could be provided for and therefore have these freedoms that they enjoy freely. But then there is also this third idea of freedom, which is really important, which is my grandmother's one in the book, which is that every society, however, each society, however oppressive they are, they can never crush the dignity of people. And in discovering that dignity inside people, you also discover a really important dimension of freedom, which is moral freedom, which is the freedom to choose between good and evil that no totalitarian system, however oppressive they are, can take away from you. And if you discover that moral freedom, that is the foundation for also criticizing the societies in which you live and for building and bringing up better alternatives. And I have another quote from your book I'd like to uh, read. Uh, your family equated socialism with denial, the denial of who they wanted to be, of the right to make mistakes and learn from them, to explore the world on one's own terms. You equated liberalism with broken promises, the destruction of solidarity, the right to inherit privilege, selfish enrichment, cultivating illusions while turning a blind eye to injustice. I think that's pretty good. Yeah, and these are two different kinds of unfreedom, exactly. The kinds of unfreedom that you would have found in Albania before 1990 and after 1990. And it's also the kinds of unfreedom that I think a right society should strive to remedy on both of them. So you should have democracy, political rights, political opportunities, but you should also have an equal distribution of all those things so that nobody is left behind and falls out of the system. We're nearing the end of our time. And um, your final sentence in your book, I think is important to read. I wrote my story to explain, to reconcile and continue the struggle. And that's what it is. It's a struggle uh, to do the right thing, to, to be honest with yourself as well as with others. Yeah, that's the message of the book, basically. It's a message of both reconciliation, but also of the idea that reconciliation is needed to build better and to think about the future in a way that is shaped and informed by what we learn from the failures of the past. So today, um, I have been speaking to Leah Upi, who wrote a, a, a new book, and it's really a good book, and I would recommend this to everyone. It's called Free, A Child and a Country at the end of history. Uh, you've been listening to Politics, A Love Story, and I'm your host, Bob Boshansky. And Leah, I wanna thank you so much for being on. This has been a very good conversation we've had over this past hour. Thank you for it. Thank you very much for hosting me. This has been Politics, A Love Story on KZYX. I'm your host, Bob Boshansky. Politics, A Love Story airs every first and third Friday at 9 a.m. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.